Hello and welcome back to the Crash Podcast, which, as you'll remember, is all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. My name is Tom Termazai, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor. Now, with apologies for the slightly extended break between recent releases due to various migratory patterns evolving through the summer, after our forays into the pharmaceutical industry last time out, we keep on our exploration gear as we head for some very diverse terrain indeed. This episode, we're pushing beyond the confines of clinical radiology to meet three individuals with substantial experience in medical imaging research, but in very different roles. So let's meet our guests. First of all, it's my pleasure to welcome Christina Malamatenu, among her many roles, Director of Postgraduate Radiography at City University of London and Visiting Professor of Radiography at the Haute École de Santé Vaux, Lausanne in Switzerland. Hi, Christina. Great to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Thank you. Did I get that French pronunciation right? Uh, both the French and the Greek. I'm really impressed. Okay. Oh, thanks ever so much. Next, it's a, well, very familiar face for me as we welcome Graham Treese, Professor of Information Engineering at the University of Cambridge and my once upon a time PhD supervisor. Hello, Graham. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Nice to see you again. Yes, absolutely. And finally, it's a very warm welcome to Angela Derricker, among her roles, Head of MRI Physics and Consultant Clinical Scientist at the Department of Medical Physics, University Hospital, Southampton. Hi, Angela. Really pleased to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Great to be here and thanks for inviting me. No problem. Yep, it's still all rather sun-scorched outside, so we've slipped into our chairs, slapped on our headphones and slopped, well, hopefully nothing. But I hope we're all comfortable, hydrated and ready to get the conversation flowing. Christina, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today? Thank you, Tom. Uh, well, I started in 1998 um, with my studies in diagnostic radiography in Athens, Greece, at the university there. Um, the studies in Greece radiography are four year long, so a year um, more than the UK studies and other countries. Uh, I graduated uh, in 2002, uh, and then I worked briefly in a clinical context at the University Hospital of Athens. My work there and my um, you know, many activities with auditing and, and quality improvement projects brought me in touch with research, which I loved because it's allowed me to see the, the scaling up of the benefit for patients through research. That's why I think I came into it. And this led me to some postgraduate studies in the UK, funded by the Greek State Scholarship Foundation to do my PhD at Imperial College in London until 2007. And then I worked as an academic, um, clinical academic research radiographer, um, you know, with different breaks in between for family. Uh, until until now, I'm now an academic in um, in radiography. I'm the re director of the program, and I work in many different areas of research. I'm not currently undertaking any clinical practice since 2016 in artificial intelligence, in person-centered care, and in research capacity building for radiographers. So you've taken that step completely away from the clinical interface. Since 2016, yes. Until 2016, I worked in different hospitals as a research radiographer. So this involved the Hammersmith Hospital, uh, Liverpool, uh, up in Liverpool, and then back down at St. Thomas's for four years until 2016. And after that time, I chose an academic-only career in radiography. Okay, well, look, thanks so much for that introduction, Christina. But as our listeners will by now realise, there's no running into the shade or stepping away for protection from this next bit of the podcast, which is, of course, the crash test. 
Here's a quick reminder, 16 numbers to choose from on the crash test grid, which is now going to loom into view. Look at that, very bright and sunny, appropriate for the time of year. Now there'll be 16 to choose from, as I said, five each, and they could be about anything, and it'll be honest answers only, please, Christine. So why don't you choose your first number? Okay, I'll choose six, which is my lucky number. Lucky number six. What's the oldest thing that you own? The oldest thing that I own was given to me by a very good friend at the 100 years of the Society and College of Radiographers official dinner. That's this summer. It, it is a 100-year-old pin from the Netherlands. Really beautiful. And I wear it on my jacket when I have some professional commitments and some presentations. So this is what I own. I think it has a very lovely name. But I can't remember the name in Dutch. I'm sorry, my, my Dutch has left me today. <laughs> yeah. Is that like a badge of office that you have? Is that? It, it has the, the shape of it. It's like the infinity shape and it's mm. adorned with some lovely gems on it. Uh, it's, it's nothing to do with professional, but the person who gave it to me, uh, Doreen Pronclarif, has been my mentor since my journey into research. So it's really meaningful for me. It's, I really, you know, it's, it's really lovely and meaningful professionally. And you know, personally. Oh, well, that's that's a fantastic little piece, a great story. So what's your next number? Let's go for nine. Okay. What's the most extreme sport or activity that you've been involved with that you've done? My goodness, I'm not into that at all. I'm a very conservative, risk-averse person. So let's say the most extreme sport I have been involved with is motherhood. <laughs> and yep. you can take you into so many extremes uh, and yes. that you, you never thought you had the capacity of, of undertaking so I, I think this is my answer for that I, I cannot see myself into yeah. anything that's more extreme than that well like all sports the mental side of that particular game I'm sure is extremely challenging is just as much as the physical <laughs> it is and it's also the lack of sleep that that sometimes it just bends you you know yeah yeah absolutely okay so what's your next one uh, let's say eight. Yeah. Okay. So what's guaranteed to make you laugh? Good company. You know, people who are who are full of energy, good company makes me laugh and good food as well. You know, it just gives you this, this sense of satisfaction and happiness. Okay. So what's your next one? Let's go for 13. Ah, who is your favorite politician? Now, that doesn't have to be from now. I mean, that is quite relevant given the current political situation here in the UK, but who for you? Okay, so the first, the, the best politician for me comes from my own home country, uh, the one I like. Uh, well, actually, well, I'm trying to think differently. Let's think more contemporary. Okay, so I love um, Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand. It's yep. a lovely woman. It's a symbol for female leadership, compassionate leadership, uh, innovation, and, and she, she loves her people clearly. So, and she takes care of them. So I quite like her. Yeah, what an excellent choice. Thinking globally, I can see a, a top example. Okay, so your last one. Let's go for number 16. Okay, so hot tub or plunge pool? No idea what... <laughs> okay, <laughs> hot tub is a big barrel that's got hot bubbly water in that you jump into. Okay. Plunge pool is a really cold mini pool of water that you jump into. Okay, so the answer would vary well with where I am. So currently I'm in Greece. It's very warm. So the yep. plunge pool sounds really great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that very much was location and time of year dependent, that question. Look, so thanks ever so much, Christina, for doing Thank the you. crash test. Graham, why don't you tell us a bit about your background and your positions and how you came to be where you are today? Thank you. Um, well, I actually started um, with a degree in uh, engineering, in fact, uh, which is a pretty general degree in engineering at the University of Cambridge, um, covering all sorts of different specialities. 
Um, and I was thoroughly fed up at the end of that and really didn't want to do any more studying. So um, <laughs> I, I, I went off to be a um, sort of consultant in sort of digital uh, communications and various other things uh, for a few years. Um, and that intriguingly, it got me interested in doing research, but it also convinced me that I really didn't want to stick with that and get sucked into essentially project management. Because um, I, I really did enjoy the actual research I was doing, or maybe not the type of research, but the, the, the idea of doing research came from that. So after about four and a half years, um, by then I was married to uh, my wife, who's now a clinical oncologist. Um, and as she started her um, sort of clinical training, I then went back and did a PhD. Um, and at, the point, um, at that point, I was trying to pick something that just seemed interesting and well-motivated. So I ended up doing something related to um, medical ultrasound, in fact. Um, and since then, I've stayed in academia in various different postdocs, lectureships, uh, professorships, that kind of thing, job, but sticking with the sort of medical imaging theme. Um, I've done a whole bunch of different things since then, um, in the however many years it is since, it was 1998, I think I went back into academia. So it's 24 years or something since then. Um, but I've stuck with the general theme of medical imaging. Including supervising one or two rogue radiologists in their, yeah, their yeah. weird <laughs> aspirations. Occasionally, um, yes. Yeah. And, 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 and working with quite a few um, different people, radiologists and oncologists and, and various other people at the uh, local hospital as well. Yeah, we're going to come on to explore that. That's definitely going to be part of how we're going to try and tie this all together between all of you. Yeah, so this is always not the easiest for me when I, someone I know to then ask them the questions on the crash test. So, you know, good luck, Graham. Thank you. Okay, so here we go. Which one would you like, Graham? Uh, how about number one? Okay, how many times did you fail your driving test? Oh, good question. Once. Once. Okay. Um, and any details? Anything particularly embarrassing uh, about I, that? I just, no, it was incredibly unembarrassing. I just nudged a curb when I was parking. <laughs> okay. Oh, you didn't mean, really. <laughs> I know, but they are they are real sticklers for that. I mean, if it's like a, a pram or something, you get that. But uh, mm. <laughs> and the curb. Look, this is the one we ask everyone. So, Angela, why don't you tell us how many times did you fail? I didn't. I passed first time. First time. Fantastic. And uh, Christina, this is interesting. The same with Angela. Uh, I, I passed first time. And was that in Greece or was that in the UK? In Greece. Okay, fine. Okay, so did you ever sit it in the UK? Because we've had some guests that have done it twice. I, I didn't have to because at the time the European driving license mm. was available to Greek citizens. Oh. So I was very Good lucky. Old, good old days. Right, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Graham, let's come back to you. Let's go for your second question. Uh, how about number four? Who is your anti-hero? I mean, fictional, real, doesn't matter. Well, that's interesting. Bit extreme, but Boris would come close. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's just that the, the lack of basic honesty and morals. Yes. I think okay. is terrible. Terrible. But that does suggest that he's done something good, though, as an anti-hero, potentially, if we're in a classical uh, sense. No. Okay, you're just going to go. Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll take that. Okay, next one. Five. Which is your favourite colour property set in Monopoly? Now, maybe people have done more of this during lockdown, but... Uh... Oh, um, probably green. Okay, and why, why the greens? Do you think well, that they're, they're good? Well, because they're not quite as expensive as blue, but they still sort of destroy everyone else. So. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. I was always told that you should go for the reds and oranges because you get all the yeah. go to Trafalgar Square, go back three spaces, and that's how you bratch people. Bratch is a term that my family seem to use that I, no one else uses, which is to utterly and contemptuously bankrupt someone. Okay, next one. Uh, how about 12? What's the least amount of sleep you can get away with? Christina, <laughs> we almost had that from you. But uh, Graham, what about um, yourself? If, if you'd have asked me uh, ooh, about 
12 or 13 years ago, I would have said probably a couple of hours. Um, these days, five maybe. Okay. All right. So it's kind of swung the other way. Like as you're getting a bit there, you just need a bit more energy in the bank. Mm, My yeah. children are basically a bit older now. Okay. So I think this is going to be your last one. Uh, 15, is that still there? What's the last piece of artwork that you made? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I'm glad these are interesting. <laughs> well, I do quite a bit with, with my children over the years, actually. Mm. Does, um, does, a, does a sort of piece of um, hand-built furniture count as artwork or not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, so maybe, maybe art and crafts. Uh, so yeah. a, a, bit of, a bit of sort of like furniture. I'm looking at it at the moment, actually, oh. for the corner of our lounge. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, great stuff. Look, and Graham, thank you so much for doing the crash test. That wasn't painful or awkward at all. Brilliant. <laughs> Okay, Angela, let's come on to you. Why don't you tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to be where you are today? Okay, I think I have a slightly different background to the others mm. because I'm not really an academic, I'm a pseudo-academic, but I started out doing a physics degree at Imperial and kind of wanted to do something useful with that, didn't want to go and become an accountant, which is what a few of my peers went to do. Um, and medical physics was one of the things that kind of popped up in our third year options and I really enjoyed it actually. So I went and did a master's up in Aberdeen and then eventually, well, the next year, got onto um, the NHS clinical scientist training scheme. In those days, it was called the grade A training scheme. It's changed a few times over the past uh, 20 odd years um, and it's now called the scientist training program, STP. Um, and that trains us to be clinical scientists in medical physics within the NHS. So we are NHS staff as opposed to academics. Um, and we could choose a few different options. So I worked in MR, nuclear medicine and radiation protection, but I always had had an interest in MR. All my university projects and my master's projects were in MRI. Not that easy to get a job as an NHS MRI physicist because there's not that many around. But I got one in Southampton and I've been here ever since, which has been the last 20 odd years. Um, and so, yeah, my career in Southampton has really been just trying to develop that MRI physics service and the team and the research. So I work across both the clinical environment and the research environment, uh, working with the university here, although I'm not part of the university officially. Um, and it's just really evolved. It's been me on my own for quite a long time, uh, for about 15 years. Um, because it's quite a niche area so you know it wasn't a big team at all but we've grown that team a bit in the last few years um, and the research side has always been there so that's kind of part of our roles I think as NHS clinical scientists is to enable lots of research is to translate it and work with other clinicians and radiologists to do that um, and the radiographers um, as well to do that and yeah so that's where the the research has come into my role but I'm I'm also our MR safety expert and get involved on the on the clinical side still as well. But, you know, the aspirations are there to it's taken a long time, but are still there to, to develop imaging research in Southampton. And we've got a few few things that have happened recently that I think are putting us on the right track. And um, yeah, we're getting there. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for the introduction. I can already see that there are some really um, fascinating themes that, that do still, I think, and I, I did bring you all together that I think are common to everyone. So I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring that discussion. But we, first of all, going to push the next step in your evolution, Angela, with the crash test. Okay, right. So which ones would you like? Number two. Right. What is your biggest regret? I'm glad I didn't get that one. 
this sounds terrible considering I'm a physicist, not doing an art degree, maybe. <laughs> or doing something slightly more arty. I think I'm quite a creative person doing a science job, which is good in a way. But yeah, I, I think science needs people like you, Angela, to to bring a different uh, perspective. I think it's essential. Yeah, well, that's that's really cool. Okay, next one. Um, oh, I can't read them. Number no, I know you can't. I'm sorry. Number 10. You've got number 10 there. Well done. <laughs> um, what record would you most like to hold? And that's any type of record. Oh, what record? You know, we could be talking hot dogs, you know, <sighs> hot dog competition, uh, javelin. Do you know, because I'm so rubbish at running and this will never, ever happen. And it's just, you know, out of the ballpark completely. It's something like 100 metres sprint record but yeah that will never yeah, yeah, yeah. Happen. well you that's that's the one i would go for i think that's yeah. the that's the real blue ribbon one number 14 milk dark or white chocolate of course white being heretical type of chocolate oh, bit of bit of all of them at some time uh, dark i think dark. yeah right next one uh, number 11 what's the farthest you have ever swum well from my running comment, <laughs> no, I'm not a sporty person. <laughs> so probably a length of a pool, which is probably about 25 metres. Okay. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So survival standards here. This yeah. is like the yeah. school swim. swim test. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so here's your last one then. Which one would you like? Uh, there? Number three, please. Who do you think is your celebrity lookalike or perhaps less flatteringly, who do other people tell you this might be? <laughs> I've been waiting. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I do have a twin sister, which is one fun fact. So I have a, I have a lookalike. An I'm actual doppelganger. Actual Brilliant. Doppelganger. Right, we are oh. apparently identical. I don't think we look very identical. Um, I've been told Kirsty Allsop, an Indian version of Kirsty. Yeah. Yes. I have no idea. <laughs> I'd batch that. And look, you know, everyone's got someone that they sort of either think they are look like or they just constantly get mistaken for. So yeah, well, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Thank you, everyone, for doing the crash test. Okay, right. I'm just going to catch my breath after all of that. And now it's time to get on to the main meet of the discussion. So, Christina, I'm going to come back to you and we're going to open up and set ourselves off here and just delve a little bit more specifically after you told us about the history of you coming to do the, your radiography in Athens. But what was it that drew you initially towards that type of career with, that would involve medical imaging? I wanted to go into healthcare. I knew I wanted to go into healthcare because I wanted to do a profession that you know, um, cares for others. Um, I'm not sure what came first. I mean, I know I'm a visual learner and I love images, I love photos, and I love the power of an image. I'm not sure if this drew me to medical imaging or was it the other way around that by immersing myself into medical imaging, I became more of a, I appreciated more images and I became more of a visual learner. I think perhaps it's, it's a bit of both, but clearly the element of, you know, the healthcare element and the and the beauty of images, medical images, drew me to to that field. Yeah, so Graham, I, I'm guessing it's probably a little bit different given that you moved um, into the sort of consultancy role. But what was it that, that attracted you about the imaging? Uh, good question. So I think it was... Um confluence of a few different things so um, I was always into kind of you know algorithms and software and that kind of thing um, I was one of the rare rare kids who when I was young actually used a computer to do programming on rather than just play games with yeah and um, just because of the, the sort of creativity involved in that the fact that you can do something get it to do something for you 
Um, and so when I was looking for um, a PhD to come back and do, I wanted to apply that, but I wanted to apply it to something that was genuinely useful and that would kind of get me out of bed in the morning, um, that felt like I was doing something worthwhile. Um, and so looking around at that and also with the, um, with the sort of affected a little bit by what my wife was doing as well, um, mm. I found someone who was working in ultrasound and that just sounded very interesting. And um, so that got me started. And then since then, um, I've been involved in all sorts of other, uh, maybe CT and various other things, but stuck with the imaging theme since then. So who was it that supervised you in your PhD? Uh, it was Richard Praga, um, who's, um, who's now the, um, the head of the engineering department in Cambridge. He used to be the head of the School of Technology as well. And did he have direct experience in medical imaging or was that something you went on a journey together? Uh, no, I think he, he had started working with a radiologist um, who's still around, Lawrence Berman. Yes. Um, and um, I sort of picked it up as, a, as his student. And then I went off and did other things after that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Angela, same question to you. You gave us some insight about the decision that you had, I guess, coming from a medical physics background or a physics background. But then what were the sort of thought processes that pushed you into a longer career with medical imaging? I, I mean, career is one of is the key word, actually. And it was, you know, what do you do with a physics degree that isn't finance, uh, teaching or uh, going and working for you know an aerospace company or something it just seemed to be a, a kind of a nice as Graham used the word confluence of you know something useful something that was really fascinating actually I'm still fascinated by the fact that you can use a big magnet to get images mm -hmm. um, and that whole process from from kind of spins to to something very tangible at the end of it and it works and it's you know the physics works so amazingly well in the body um and yeah and then having a kind of sustainable career within the nhs it's you know the, the sensible side of me coming out but it's it's kind of you know where can you take all of those skills and use them in a very practical and useful way yet yep. still in a very fascinating environment especially in a in a clinical environment so, so with Christina, you'd imagine the radiography is a bit more vocational, but with physics, do you think that's a, a, a problem that, or, or rather might have been a problem historically in terms of what your career options might have been? Um, I do think, I think there are lots of career options with physics and, you know, it's, it's a numerate degree, which gives you a lot of skills. So I do think there are career options, but it's, it's kind of getting those out to our kind of young, young people now as well and trying to tell them that there are various paths you can go down and you don't have yes. to be a straight kind of either academic or or leave physics or go into teaching mm. you know they're the kind of obvious things and I think something like medical physics is gaining some traction but it's it's not as well known as uh, some of the other areas of physics that are slightly more kind of esoteric so you know mm. things like space physics or astronomy or high energy physics um and I think we need to encourage kids from all sorts of backgrounds to, to get into science and to get into these kind of careers, because uh, we were talking about this the other day in our in our group, you know, we need diversity of thinking when we were talking about me being quite creative and, and actually bringing those different skills to the problem solving world that we live in, especially in a clinical environment is, I think, really important. So, so yeah, I think we just need to put those options out there and and emphasize that you can do a lot of things with a science degree 
Yeah, because one of the other uh, translations is that, for example, we had Mark Little on as a previous episode a, a little while back, and he did physics to start off with and then moved into medicine and radiology and is an interventional radiologist. So, and it's so important. And I think the experience that he has taken with him seems to be of huge value. And I, I, I think these, these crossovers is what all this episode is all about. So look, I've talked about that kind of career line, but Christina, can I come back to you and then develop on what you said about how you got drawn into the research side of things. You mentioned something that I resonate with very much was that you talked about working with audit and a little a little bit in the early stages which was how I started out and it's often actually how I try and encourage trainees to say look if you've had an audit experience let's push this further tell us a little bit about how research started to develop as the main theme for you yes so when I was uh, working as a clinical MRI radiographer at the University Hospital of Athens in the early 2000s I, I was given the opportunity to participate in some of the audits and quality improvement projects um, in the MRI department, and also to, to help optimize with a multidisciplinary team, of course, made up by radiologists and medical physicists, as is, as is always the case in, in radiology departments, to, to create some new protocols, some optimized protocols for brain MRI. And in the same way that the importance of caring for others and helping others brought me into healthcare. I realized the potential of research for scaling things up. So if you optimize the protocols, you can get better images, more people will get diagnosed properly and they get better treatment. So for me, that was the major motivator to be engaged in research. I also liked researchers. They were really methodical. They were really thorough uh, and they took they took time and they made time to think, not just be, you know, in this conveyor belt. I was just going to ask you, what did you think about the time? Do you think time runs at a different pace? It, it should run at a different pace. And I guess this is part of the flexibility of an academic and research career that you do have this privilege of the time or you have to create it somehow uh, in your own time. Um, but I, I did really appreciate the time I was given to reflect, to evaluate and assess, and then move back and, and improve things. Because sometimes, however beautiful clinical practice is, sometimes it can be very intense and you need this headspace. Hey, Graham, you wanted to add something there? No, I was, I was just going to echo what you said about um, having more time to look into things. So it's one of the reasons I stopped doing consultancy, because I was doing all sorts of lo lots of interesting things, but you were never given enough time to properly understand it. It was very frustrating to be having to do things where you, you just didn't have the luxury to really dig into what was going on. And, and that's one of the things I really enjoy about research. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why one takes a step to do a PhD, because then you are very much master of your time. Well, why don't you tell us more then logically about your PhD, Christina? Okay, so my PhD happened between 2003 and 2007, it was at the Imperial College, and I was based at the Hammersmith Hospital at the time. My supervisors were Professor Joe Hainel, a, a medical physicist, and Professor Mary Rutherford, a radiologist. So it was it was really nice to work with them, a pediatric radiologist, actually. Um, really nice to work with them within a very nice team. It didn't come easy, uh, the PhD, because I... I did not have the, the money to come to London, so I had to apply for a scholarship. 
and I did not want to do it part time because I want I wanted to be done in the in the most efficient way possible. So I wanted to do it, you know, outright. So I was very fortunate at the time. There were there was this opportunity to get fully funded um, scholarships for PhDs from Greece. Unfortunately, this has stopped since the financial crisis in 2008. And it's a big loss for, for Greece and other countries that cannot get, you know, the the expertise, you know, mm, um, mm. in PhDs and coming back as well. Mm. Um, the first year of my PhD, Tom, I spent it crying because there was a cultural shock, as you can imagine, from clinical into research. Although I loved researchers, it was, you know, I had to learn the language, the 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 behaviors, the ways, the structures, everything. It was also the cultural shock from being, you know, Greek uh, into a, a new environment in a different country away from family and friends. So mm. the first year I considered more than twice to give up. The only thing that um, sincerely kept me going was that if I gave up, I would have to return all the money from the scholarship and I could not afford that. So I yes. said, I have to pull, I have to push through that. What a motivator. To, yeah. to make it happen. So eventually after the first year, I found the ways and I found the language. I understood more things. I, I got a lot of support from my supervisors. I made some new friends and and the rest is history. So yeah. it, it it wasn't easy. It was like literally um, giving birth. It was it was like a, a four year long gestation, and then giving birth <laughs> into something into something really new. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't an easy gestation either. Wow, uh, what a brilliant analogy. Graham, you talked about the fact that you clearly wanted to be able to explore, have the time with research, but coming into a university academic career isn't necessarily all about research, which we maybe touch on a bit later. So could you go into a little bit more detail, perhaps about as you came out of your PhD, what your thoughts were as to, well, right, what am I going to take forwards here uh, in the research world? There's two ways of answering this. This is what I did and what what jobs I had, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, the Job-wise, there's a fairly standard path for if you come out of a PhD, you expect that you hopefully get a postdoc position of some sort. Um, and mm. that means you're basically carrying on doing similar things to a PhD, but just someone else gets to decide more what you look at <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, so you're, you're, not, you're maybe not quite as, as independent. I was very independent with, in my PhD, which was very uh, fortunate. Um, in terms of what I, what I looked into, I mean, I carried on doing ultrasound for a bit. I carried on working in that field. And I have to say, the things that I've done since then, I've done in about six-year cycles, and the topics have always come out pretty randomly. Um, one of the nice things about where I am is just the number of people that are around that are, are doing interesting things, and the, the number of contacts there are with sort of random people outside of your immediate circle. And pretty much all of the research topics have come out of random contacts with other people or other people doing random things. Um, mm. So, I, you know, I can't really, there wasn't a structure to that. Yeah. So do you think that your position gave you that ability? I'm not quite sure, for example, what time you might uh, in your career, what stage you might have been tenured. But do you think that gives you the ability to explore a bit more with the research goals? Um, yeah, I mean, the point at which you, I mean, obviously, as, as a postdoc, you're doing you're doing a job and there's there's a particular problem that you're trying to solve and you pretty much have to stick to that. Um, after that, I got a lectureship and that was. That was, well, actually, no, after that, I got a Royal, Royal Academy of Engineering Fellowship. Now, that was mm. very nice. That was a five-year post where you basically decide what you want to do. So you're actually acting as an independent, nearly an independent sort of PI um, on that 
which was nice. Um, that, what was the topic in that? What did you really uh, play around uh, with then? The, the topic on that started um, with a sort of uh, extension of 3D ultrasound, um, attenuation imaging perhaps, um, trying to reduce shadows, that sort of thing. Mm. And it developed into elastography, which is totally different, um, but they didn't seem to mind <laughs> as long as I was doing something useful, which is stiffness imaging using ultrasound. Yes, of course. And what I reflected on as a, a clinical radiologist coming into the in, environment, um, you know, with posters on the walls in our office is that I'm looking at stuff that you were doing stuff in um, 3D ultrasound and elastography that was way ahead. We're using these things now clinically. So it's, you know, this is where these ideas are built. I think it also goes to show that the translation is really important. And you've talked about meeting loads of different people from different backgrounds. And I do know that you run yeah. the Engineering for Clinical Practice initiative. When did that start? And what kind of things is that delivered interesting so that that was an initiative to try and connect um engineers with um people in the hospital any any people in the hospital. So this is not just medical imaging this is this is the whole breadth of, of sort of clinical engineering and, and anything else that engineers might be able to contribute to and there was quite a bit going on but it was very sporadic um, and needed a little bit of a current encouragement um that was multifaceted like all these things i mean on, on the one hand it was a it was a way of trying to get me a job <laughs> so you know mm. a lot of these things come out through through some motivation that are linked to that on the other hand it was a way of tr just trying to um persuade other engineers to to get involved in this kind of thing to, to talk to people at the local hospital to try and find some motivation and ideas for what they were doing um there um we were very fortunate to have a very generous funder um who then gave us sort of i think it was seven years of of, of, a, of a post mm. which i then i then actually had to apply for and then and then managed to get fortunately um, and that, that was running for seven years. It still runs kind of unofficially. The post finished, I don't know, 15 years ago or 14 years ago or something, but I still, I still unofficially try to, try to encourage any kind of collaboration in the engineering department with, with clinicians. Yeah. Well, as case in point. So Angela, you said almost right from the start that you're not really in research. Now, I think we can definitely stretch the definition and explore that a little bit further. Have you been involved in research projects and what do you see your relationship with research? Yeah, I am involved in research. But my definition of not being a proper researcher is that I'm not a university employee. I'm very much an NHS employee and I don't have a, a kind of an academic a bit of funding to fund the research that I do but having said that I do I, I see my role and our role within the NHS as clinical scientists as, as quite a lot of that is enabling others to do their research and that sounds a bit oh well you just you know press a few buttons and let them then do the clever <laughs> stuff but actually it is it's a, about bringing those ideas into a clinical environment and putting all those building blocks together that that need to happen to make that project work. So whether that's getting, you know, everything from getting funding for MR research radiographers to getting specialist sequences on the scanner, to um, setting up optimized protocols, to doing quality assurance on scanners, we're involved in all of that. And that's kind of where, you know, my research interests have evolved from. And, and that those interests are both around you know, supporting quite a diverse range of projects, but kind of linking those together um, in a less siloed way, shall we say. So I'm not kind of very focused researcher. I have lots of interests, um, but also then how do we enable and encourage research within a, a very clinical NHS environment? And that's where my NIHR work comes in as well. So it's, although I say I'm not a proper researcher, a lot of my time is spent 
kind of enabling and um, optimizing research um, for others and for my team as well. Yeah, I mean, this is essential. It's it's all part and parcel. I think what we've got is everyone has different, everyone has to hit, hit the same notes, but for some it's just louder or it's happening more frequently in certain areas than others. So I just wanted to touch on, because you hinted at you have position with the NIHR, and we'll come and ask everyone this, what kind of other responsibilities do you have away from just the actual research activity? Andrew, you've told us all about the clinical side of the MRI physics delivery, but give us a little bit more insight into the kind of other positions and roles and responsibilities that you have. Yeah, so I am, I'm head of MRI physics, so that means I'm kind of leading a very small team um, to provide that expertise and that support on the safety side, on the clinical service development side, on QA, scanner procurement, all those kind of things. So that's that's the clinical side. But then I'm also just newly appointed, actually, um, UHS lead for imaging research. And that is a new post that we've got funded from R&D to help, um, I suppose, develop imaging research, make it more robust and efficient within Southampton um, to to encourage stronger links with the University of Southampton. We already have quite strong links, but yes. really to get those um, in place a bit more robustly as well. How much time um, have you been given for that? Uh, two days a week. Really. Wow, I think you can get really stuck good. in with that. That's brilliant. What um, our listeners won't see is Graham did the little very tiny finger amount when I said how much time, which is normally what you kind of expect no, is that exactly. a lot is asked a very little time oh great great well well done to you and Southampton for working that out it's good and it, it means that but it, I also kind of into that put in my NIHR work my CRN I'm the mm. CRN Wessex imaging research champion which means I'm kind of looking after research for imaging regionally as well so although it sounds like quite a lot of time it's actually kind of spread between lots of different bits and pieces and um, yeah, but it, it's just nice to have that recognised as that's required to develop imaging research. Well, let's hold up a massive signpost which says, go to Angela if you're in Southampton and the area and you want to be involved in imaging research. <laughs> I think that's quite clear. Thank they already you. do. They do. <laughs> <Okay>. well, <laughs> but no, it's, it's great. It's great. And it's it really helps kind of put us on, you know, gives us a platform to work from, to be honest. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So, Christina, other roles. Now, I think you've got quite a few. Why don't you just tell us about some of the other roles that you, you're involved with? Yes, I guess it's the illusion of academia that makes you think you have a lot of time and then you fill it in and then you realise you have no time. <laughs> so yes. let me just say that um, in academia, we are measured a lot uh, by the impact we can have on society. So these roles are are my effort to try and impact policy and practice. And that's why I assume these roles. And they always come with, uh, you know, with discussion with my line manager and our associate in research to ensure that they are part of the, of the schools and the department strategy. So one of the other roles I have, I am the uh, chair of the Artificial Intelligence Advisory Group uh, of the Society and College of Radiographers, our professional body. And this, helps me work with like-minded radiographers uh, on, on, on writing up guidance uh, and defining the priorities for AI research in, in our practice in radiography. Um, another role I have is vice chair 
of research at the European levels. It's called the European Federation of Radiographer Societies. And I, this spring I will become the chair because this is like um, an involvement of leadership in there. And, and this gives me unique, um, you know, unique oversight of what happens in Europe for radiography research and how we can prioritize different areas of research to improve practice and help the patient experience and patient outcomes from our own perspective yes our mm -hmm. own uh, radiography perspective what we can do better um the, the the thing i'm most proud about i guess is being the chair of the steering committee of a mentoring scheme for research radiographers and this all started from my uh, challenging experience in my first year of my phd so at the time, like 20 years ago, there was there were very few radiographers who were doing PhDs. So I was like a bit of um, the old the old person in in the yeah. team always. Say you're a radiographer and you're doing research. How how can this happen? So uh, and because there were not many role models, it was difficult to navigate the space. And more importantly, once I finished finished my PhD, there were no careers for radiographers with a PhD that would be, you know, straightforward. You finish that and you go there, you do that. There was nothing like that at the time. There are many more things now, thankfully. But I did create, I did conceptualize this idea and I discussed about it in 2005 at the Society and College of Radiographers. And now we are in the third cohort of the formal radiography research mentoring scheme in the UK which has so far helped more than 50 radiographers go on to a research career by one-to-one -one mentoring um, and tuition uh, from professors and associate professors in the UK. And I'm really proud for that because this mm -hmm. means that these radiographers don't have to, to, to get this feeling of, you know, being feeling lost or without some help when they start their research careers, they have a lot of support and they, they have this belonging and community of practice yeah. that you need when you start that journey. I thought I was going to sort of put you in an awkward position and say, which of these roles do you enjoy the most? But you went there and it is a key part. And to, to have used your experiences, although they may have been really difficult, and to sort of say, this is a space that needs to be occupied. We need to have mentorship. And I know that, for example, for radiologists through the Radiant Network, which is the academic radiology network for trainees, they've recognized mentorship as being absolutely critical, having people that have had that experience, have had that journey. And the um, academic committee at the, at the Royal College of Radiologists, again, really does recognize that that is absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, people get lost and they don't even consider something that's there and available for them. And, you know, you very much do seem, you know, have pioneered that kind of career development. And to hear that 50 people, you know, that's astonishing. Yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy for them all. And I'm very grateful to all the mentors who give up their really... Mm you know, precious time to support the, the future research leaders in radiography, because mm. we need them. Without them, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't be able to do it. And of Absolutely. course, the society and the College of Radiographers for funding that for three years, for all the networking and training events, uh, and for special awards for the best mentor and mentee pair of every cohort, which is really great for them. Ah, yes. Excellent motivation. So, Graham, can I come over to you and actually we'll dial back the conversation a little bit because I'm I'm really keen to discuss and explore the roles that you have that aren't directly in research because in a university position there's clearly going to be lots of other things going on. What kind of things are those for you? Yeah, indeed. Thank 
Yeah, it was interesting that Christina mentioned her mentorship as one of the things she's most proud of, because I was, I was going to say um, teaching I haven't mentioned at all. I mean, as a, as yeah. a university researcher, teaching is quite a big, a big thing that, that I do. Um, I thoroughly enjoy it, uh, mostly undergraduate teaching. Um, so I'm, for instance, in charge of the bioengineering uh, program at the engineering department, which is quite fun. That means I'm sort of responsible for making sure all of the bits are taught by someone um, and the whole well, thing comes together. I've been in your lectures, Gray, and they are very fun. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and and I, I, I lecture a bit and um, I supervise. I'm actually, I've actually also been responsible for a very interesting initiative um, in Cambridge, uh, getting um, people who are training in medicine to do engineering as their sort of free third year course, uh, which has been really interesting. Um, so let's just touch on that. This is a bizarre thing about Cambridge undergrad mm. medicine is that that third year can be almost anything provided is sort of justified around medicine or sometimes not. People have been in my time, I, Egyptology. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it has to be justified around oh, medicine okay, at all. Fine, I, think you, yeah. I think you can technically do anything you want, um, although, you know, most medics don't because mostly yeah. they want to do something which is related. But that means that we, we have a few very brave medics who come and do our third year engineering course. Um, the sort of bioengineering, which is pretty general. Um, I, I'm incredibly impressed with them all because it's quite a big deal changing course, but they usually come out having learned a lot and having some really interesting stuff on their CV as a result of actually mm. having studied a much more technical subject uh, for, for a whole year and then gone back into clinical medicine afterwards usually. So I, I, I can liaise with all the medics who are thinking of, of doing that and trying to make sure that they're not biting off more than they can chew as it were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very important. So with all the teaching and the lecturing, I guess, comes things like I know when not to drop you an email to say, oh, by the way, at certain times of year. So things like marking responsibilities in college, you know, all these other kinds of things going on as well. Yeah, I mean, various, um, you know, responsibility for examining and stuff, uh, which, which always weighs quite heavily. I, I don't know whether um, Angela or Christina had to be involved in that, but sort of setting and marking papers is, is, is yeah. quite a big deal um, just because you want to get it right. And we have... Um, it's a big department. We have about 300 to 350 undergraduates per year, and it's a four-year course, so there's, there's a lot of people. Um, so just getting that right. Uh, I've had important. many fascinating discussions with Graham, uh, as you can imagine, but one of the ones that really it was quite interesting was insights into the marking adjustment, the how that mm. you sort of accept where grade boundaries go, because I've been stung yeah. once or twice and think, who's making these decisions? And actually, I can say, look, these are sensible people, <laughs> sensible people with real rationales behind how these things are done. So don't feel yeah, too yeah. hard done by. <laughs> Re real people anyway, hopefully sensible. Yes, yes, absolutely. Let's touch on an aspect that you have already very much, you know, floated around an involvement with clinical radiologists. Now, I mean, I don't think you are currently involved with any clinical services, but have you ever been, Graham? Have you ever kind of been a little bit more frontline? I know at some points you have been a little bit more involved at the hospital or is... Um... Not not directly with the clinical service. I mean, my involvement tends to be a step, step back from that. So, I mean, there, there are two different areas where I get involved. One is at the point where I'm trying to develop some kind of new research avenue and I've talked to someone. I mean, Ken Paul is a very good uh, example of this. Mm. Um, I first had a chat with him. He's a rheumatologist. I, I first had a chat with him um, ages and ages and ages ago where he just said what his research was like, what he was doing. And I went away and thought, you know what, I think, I, think I could contribute to that. <laughs> and out, out of that came, you know, five years down the line, a, a quite a fruitful uh, research um, yeah. line in, in measuring um, measuring bone properties using CT, for instance. But there's also another, another layer on which I, I support um, and write a, a bunch of different bits of software that implements all the research I do. And so I spend quite a lot of my time uh, not doing what I consider to be active research, but trying to support other, other people who are using 
the software I've written to do their own research. Um, and that that that's by no means just the UK. That's all over the place. So I mm. I, I have quite a lot of time that I spend just supporting people doing interesting mm. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Angela, what were you going to pop in there with? Well, I was going to ask Graham how much he gets involved with the clinical engineers within, say, Adam Bricks, I'm presuming it's Adam Bricks, on the NHS side and whether you kind of you know, try and translate some of that, that work or uh, collaborate with them. Um, I, I have been a bit in the past, not, not, not very recently. There's a slight disparity between uh, the le levels of translation and levels where work's at. Um, it tends to be, because I'm working at the technical side of things, genuine research that I could write papers on, for me, would, would be you know, 10, 15 years um, before it could be translated. Whereas the stuff that's getting immediately translated tends to be stuff that is a, a sort of done deal as far as my research is concerned. So it's quite difficult to straddle as an engineer the whole gamut of things that I could credibly call research and things that are actually ready to be translated. Um, that, that it's, it's a long path in between those two points. Um, so that... Often I've found with, with, with discussions that we're fi we find it quite difficult to find something which is ready enough to be translated that therefore they're interested in, but new enough to be research that I could also do. Um, I, I find the same here. There is a, a disconnect between, well, there, there's just a gap in that middle. Yeah. That we're, as an NHS MRI physicist, very much at the, the kind of translational, kind of implementing things that other people have done, but trying to do that in new disease areas or um new clinical cohorts and then you know Southampton there's a big NMR uh spectroscopy kind of research group who are there you know really delving into the nitty-gritty actually they're based in chemistry but the, the chemistry and the physics of NMR but there's this huge gap in between and how do we bring those bits closer so that mm. we you know help each other uh develop things and translate things in the right way and um and I think that's you know that's where some of our imaging research aspirations that <laughs> if, if we can um, should you know develop in that kind of middle ground and I think some universities are really good at that and that uh, you know we need to learn from them really. Um, we, we do do a little bit of work um, uh, I've been involved in this but other people in the engineering department do it as well trying to encourage um, our masters our fourth year undergraduate students to pick up little clinical projects that might be useful for other people because they I mean they absolutely love working on stuff that's well motivated I mean anything which is remotely clinically in, uh, um, involved even if it even if it isn't terribly helpful sounds incredibly helpful uh, to an average engineer so they love working on this kind of stuff and they have a sort of a half year research project and so we we, we we quite often try and steer them towards a, some project that might be helpful towards clinical engineering. Yeah, we've, we've got similar group design projects in engineering at Southampton that I'm not that involved with, but I know, again, there's bioengineers and electronics engineers and computer scientists who, you know, any hint of anything medical, and I'm yeah. trying to get that, you know, applied to imaging as much as I can, but any hint of anything useful nope. really is, it's especially over the last two years when healthcare has just been so kind of, you know, at the forefront of every bit of news going and um, it's really encouraged a lot of that kind of collaboration. Sorry, Tom. No, no, that's fine. I'm, I mean, my insights from this are, and I hope they're not off-putting, but that it's 
interesting that you're talking about a certain stage of res the research process in which you're involved and then that there's always stuff coming through whether that be at the, the you know the very creative early stages or the translational stages and I've sort of tried to take the approach well actually I'm going to go on one single journey which started 10 years ago with Graham at that very early stage and trying to push something all the way through to clinical implementation and you know this is this is a decade you know I have to I've, and Graham talked about six-year cycles I seem to have fallen into a five-year cycle and initially it was publishing sort of the feasibility of these things and then you know the next stage for me and that's I guess what I have from having had the the PhD in the in engineering environment and my clinical background and moving forwards to then try and implement that in the clinical environment and it does take time and again that was the off-putting bit which I didn't I didn't want people to sort of feel to feel that that you know, they have to commit 15 years of their life in order to take their output that's a slightly unusual journey um, that I've taken Christina, let me ask you, because we started off this thread by involvement with clinical radiologists a little way back. What kind of involvement have you or kind of do you currently still have with clinical radiologists? Actually, quite a lot. Um, we're very fortunate at City because we we teach our postgraduate students um, in MRI and CT uh, technology and clinical applications, and as part of trying to be to be to bring to them the state of the art in in clinical practice and also technology, we are allowed to have visiting lectures. So many clinical radiologists come and teach in our program, uh, depending on their expertise, like neuroradiologists, pediatric radiologists. GI radiologist. So we have a lot of, I have a lot of contact with them trying to coordinate the delivery of the postgraduate radiography curriculum. Uh, I also find huge inspiration as I don't work in clinical anymore since 2016 in my interactions with clinical colleagues, both radiologists and radiographers, because they have um, the understanding and, and experience of what are the clinical challenges out there. And I actually lean on them a lot to see what are the problems, particularly now with the person-centered care and AI uh, research priorities in our department. I need to know from them what are the new things that are happening, where do they find the challenges are, and how we can help them with research um, as a tool to, you know, to um, alleviate these obstacles or, or challenges. So. I work with them all the time. I mean, radiology is a radiologist used to be my PhD supervisor, my first boss, and also I work with them all the time. And I think we're really fortunate in the UK because I have seen, I have seen different teams in different countries in radiology departments. And in the UK, radiologists are all about multidisciplinarity, interprofessionalism in the department. And, and this opens up so many opportunities for collaboration, which in other countries are not happening at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> You're stealing my thunder on my closing comments. <laughs> it's absolutely the purpose of us having this conversation. So, so um, Graham, I don't want to uh, put, put words into your mouth, but again, from our previous conversations, um, you know, Christina said that some of her interactions with clinical radiologists was about defining problems that needed to be solved for the clinical application. And you said, although there's a can be a long lag of, you know, 10, 15 years, when you undertake a new project, what kind of thoughts are you having about, is this a worthwhile problem to solve? Is the, is, is the effort that I'm going to put in actually going to be something that's going to make that translation? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a very good point. I mean, there's there's sort of two facets to that. There's there's um there's obviously if you want to 
go if you want to get make decent progress in research you really 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 need to understand uh, what you're doing it to a fine level and I, I take that to mean with medical imaging understanding the sort of physics underlying it um, I think quite a lot of people just treat these things as, as images pixels essentially uh, and I mean not 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 you guys, but other people who aren't radiologists <laughs> tend to just, it, it's just an image, it's, it's, it's some dots, they have a value, you know. And without understanding the underlying physics, it's very difficult to really see uh, what you're doing, I think, with it. But the other thing, as you say, is, is working out what's the really point, what's the point of what you're doing. Mm. Um, there's a lot of work within the um, sort of technical medical imaging community, which you do wonder what the clinical point of it is going to be at the end of the day, and I think that's a mistake. So I think it's really worth thinking quite hard about what the point, <laughs> what you're actually trying to achieve here, um, what difference is it going to make? Because it can yes. really make a difference to the research line you're taking um, and where you're trying to uh, put most effort. Yep. So, Angela, you said that you're very much more at the other end of the spectrum. How do you pick up perhaps these earlier ideas and say, okay, right, well, that definitely is one of these ideas that we need to be pushing straight towards clinical practice and presumably it's sort of it may even be some research first in patients in terms of imaging or it may be perhaps you know already more well established scaling up is a term that we've you know we've used today what kind of thoughts do you have on, on that at the end of the translation well what's really interesting actually is in and it may just be my local environment is that actually quite a lot of this is prompted by non-imagers who have gone to conferences or read around their particular disease area and and don't know that much about the imaging but but can see that that imaging technique can answer a clinical question that they have got so whether that's um disease progression in dementia or how a, a baby's going to christina will probably know about this because i know the names that you were talking about earlier um how a baby is going to develop after a neonatal brain injury um, you know, what clinical tools or clinical imaging tools can we use to solve those questions? But funnily enough, that that almost doesn't come from a radiology perspective. It comes from a very clinical problem solving perspective because they're looking everywhere for, for a, a tool to help them answer that particular clinical question. And in fact, Angela, you've hit the nail on the head is that the clinical questions and clinical problems and the clinical relationships aren't just necessarily being with radiologists are they they're clearly you know it's a much broader church in terms of who you're having these interactions with so it's been very remiss of me just to be focused on radiologists despite uh, the forum yeah oh, and but it's you know it's being part of that multidisciplinary team it, it should include the clinicians the radiologists the radiographers the, the scientists whatever type of scientist um and you know you're only going to answer that question fully and robustly if you if you include every bit of that jigsaw and um but i but you know i'm very i'm always very focused on the so you know what is the clinical question what where where is the unmet clinical need for us to try and develop this bit of work because you know that it, it's i was going to say something quite rude about funding you're not going to get the funding if you can't you know show that eventual translation however far down the line it is and I think sometimes it's up to us who you know who are on the more kind of clinical side to to ask the hard questions and to kind of say well how are we going to do this in practice you know can we do that on our scanner can we get that bit of software written is that software available for anyone to use or is it very much a niche bit of software that only one person in the world can use and tweak to their own advantage so yeah there are lots of issues to overcome. 
so one of the things that after Angela finished here, um, here talk about that, I think one of the things that I find really rewarding about research is that it can really bring on change in clinical practice. And this change can be translated in improving people's lives and outcomes. Um, so uh, despite all the challenges we discussed and despite all the, all the obstacles, uh, in the end of the day, the thing that makes us, you know, start every day from, from, from scratch is that uh, feeling, uh, I, I believe. And I hope that Graham and Angela feel the same and perhaps you. Uh, I think it's universal. I think that's exactly the message and the reward that I try to get across to trainees who want to get involved as well. I can see everyone is nodding. So that's brilliant. Okay, so look, as yeah, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, I always like to test the clairvoyant skills of our guests and ask them to reflect on where they think they might be in 10 years time. Never an easy task. Christina, why don't you then go first and tell us where you think you'll be in 10 years? I think I'm very happy where I'm now. And I think if I can continue to be where I'm now, I, I don't need anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm at the happiest, most productive time of my academic career and of my life. So I, if I can continue, have the privilege to be able to be doing research, working within academia um, and enjoying my research, I don't think I have anything else I, I, I wanted to achieve. Anything else, else that happens, I don't know whether this is a, a promotion, it's, it's not really relevant to my happiness. So I'm very happy where I am. And if I can be the same in 10 years time, continuing to working with, with people in AI, in changing practice clinically, in radiography, I will be very happy. Well, what, what a beautifully wholesome answer. That's fantastic. Yeah. Graham, can I ask you the same question? 10 years time. Um, I, I, I tend to refuse to answer these kind of things. But I, mean, I mean, not refuse. I just, I've never, I've never thought of my career like that. I, I've never, I've never looked five, even five years in the future and said, this is where I want to be. I just haven't planned things that way. I've, I've looked at the next thing that seems interesting to do. Um, so, you know, I'd be quite happy if I was still in the same job. Um, I quite enjoy doing it. It gives me a lot of flexibility. As to what research I'll be doing in five or 10 years time, absolutely no idea whatsoever, but hopefully it will be something interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All perspectives welcomed. Um, and Angela, for you, 10 years. Oh, I'm the same as Graham. I never planned things <laughs> at all. <laughs> things just evolve. But I suppose not so much for me, but I want, I, I want imaging research to be just better established within the NHS, both locally for me within my trust, but also nationally having the resource and the capacity and the expertise to really support it and, and make it flourish. I think there's so much potential that we're, we're kind of missing at the moment and we're not making the most of the skills and the interests and the expertise um, that we have. So yeah, with the side hustle in interior design, maybe, no, I don't. Really. <laughs> <laughs> no, what a great mission, brilliant. So here we are at the end of another bold expedition into the world of academic imaging, uh, which, by the way, is a little side note, we really can say has hotted up over this summer with the sizzling rise of imaging journal impact factors. Now, well done to everyone involved for all your hard work, researching, writing up, reviewing, editing, supporting, whatever your role. Right. 
I hope you all feel as enlightened as I do from the insights from our guests today and that whatever your principal role, you're inspired to take a look sideways and explore the immense breadth of support and potential collaborations we have out there in medical imaging research. I mean, we covered so many different aspects today, the love of research, teaching, mentorship, the diversity of roles that people have and the involvement that this wide range of scientists, all that same goal of trying to improve lives of patients and the interactions that we have across science with clinicians, not just radiologists, of course. So it's been an enormous pleasure to hear from you, Christina, Graham and Angela. I'm really grateful for you finding the time to come on the podcast. Uh, thanks very much, Tommy. It was lovely and I really enjoyed the interaction with Graham and Angela. And if I can say something, I think I'm going to use the crash test with my students to break the ice on the first <laughs> yeah. session. It was really brilliant. It was quite, <laughs> I was very intrigued. It was brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Yes, for it's right. not, no problem. It's not copyright. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, likewise, it was really nice to meet everyone. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Graham. And yes, same from me. I've, I've really enjoyed it and I've learned a lot, actually. It's been really nice to hear what everyone else has been doing. So thanks, Tom. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Thank you so much again. Your insights from all different quarters just came together so beautifully. So that really is it for now. But fret not. We hope to have another podcast release planned for the start of autumn, in which we will be talking to individuals that have had experience in academic radiology, both in the UK and abroad, taking advantage of their international experience to reflect on how we go about things here in the UK and perhaps how we might do it better. So thanks, as always, to the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for continuing to support the podcast. Now, I am very sad that we've had to say goodbye to Charlotte McKeown as she moves on to Pastures New. Uh, good luck, Charlotte. We couldn't have got this far without you. And we're really grateful to Marissa Smith for stepping in with her support for this episode. And of course, thanks, as always, to Sue Mercer of 1A Squared for her invaluable sound editing support and creative input. As usual, show notes will be available at the RCL website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or would like to get in touch about any crash-related matters, including ideas for questions, future guests, themes, topics for discussion, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's C-O-N-F at rcr.ac.uk. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Tom Termsai. Please do get in touch. And here's the reminder about Radiant, you can find them at www.radiantuk.com, where you can get yourself and your training scheme involved in their nationally coordinated research projects that are continuing to reach new heights. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe, leave some reviews and share with your colleagues and, well, everyone. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, slap on the SPF 50 and stay safe.